mi gente, welcome to Peruvians of USA, the podcast where we share the diversity of the Peruvian immigrant experience. This is your host, Natalie Sofia, and this community was born from the need to create a space for Peruvian immigrants to come together, to support each other, to learn from each other, and to document our stories. The stories our guests share with us are deeply personal and paint a new portrait of what it means to be a Peruvian immigrant. I hope you receive these stories with an open heart and an open mind. So let's get started. Hola, mi gente. Before we dive into today's interview, I got something special to share with you. In the U.S., Peruvian Americans, especially our teens, crave stories that not only captivate us, but also reflect our unique experiences as Peruvian Americans. Bueno, mi gente, I got fantastic news. Breathe and Count Back from 10 is the book we all have been waiting for. It follows the life of Peruvian American teen with hip dysplasia, who dreams of becoming a mermaid performer. However, her parents don't approve, adding layers of complexity to her journey. This book is not just for teens, it's for all of us, who yearn for stories that resonate with our hearts. It's perfect for book clubs, sparkling, meaningful discussions about disability, immigrant parenting, and, and the diverse dreams our children may have for themselves. Brief and Come Back from 10 has received well-deserved recognition, winning multiple prestigious awards, like the 2023 Snyder Family Book Award, Honor Book for Teens. I had the honor of interviewing the author, Natalia Silvestre, on episode 61, so make sure you take a listen. You can find Breathe and Come Back from 10 anywhere books are sold, whether it's your local independent bookstore, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or Bookshop.org. Buy this incredible book, share it with your friends and familia, spread the word at your kids' schools because representation matters. For more information, visit nataliasilvester.com and don't forget to follow the author, Natalia Silvester, on Instagram. Breathe and Come Back from 10 is a celebration of our voices, our dreams, and our Peruvian-American identity. Let's make our stories heard. If something resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please be sure to share with us in social media using the hashtag Peruvians of USA. All right, here's our conversation. All right. Welcome, Stephanie Rufai, to Peruvian City USA. Thank you for being here with me today. I'm really excited about our conversation and to get to know you a little bit better and for the audience of Peruvian City USA to get to know your story. So, Stephanie, can you please briefly introduce yourself? Yes, of course. Thank you for having me. Um, so, my name is Stephanie Rufai Paris. Um, I go by she, her, a, a pronoun. Um, I am currently working as a program manager for a nonprofit foundation, um, which I'll talk about a little bit more because I love what they do. Um, but it's called Adrian Foundation and I've been there. I'm actually coming out of one year mark with them. So it's, it's pretty cool to be celebrating that. Um, I was born in the United States. Both my parents are from Peru. Um, so my dad is from Lima, um, but his family's like from the Andes region and then my mom was actually born in Iquitos and her family is a bit more spread out everywhere, but eventually went to Lima as well. So I definitely had an interesting childhood with like the coastal region of Peru, like that type of food. And then having like La Selva food, which is personally my, my favorite. Um, but yeah, so that's, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, raised in Southern California. And then I went back to the South for high school, for college. And then ever since then, I've just kind of bounced around. Um, especially because of COVID, I found myself, you know, being able to go really anywhere and just explore new states. So finally settled down in Aruba for right now. This is where my wife works. Um, she's a school teacher, physical education teacher. And so we're just here right now until we kind of decide, are we going back to the United States? Are we going to Holland? Are we staying? She's actually originally from the island of Curacao, um, which is kind of next door to us. So yeah, we still don't really know what the plan is. We always thought we'd go back to the States, but the States is kind of a little messy right now. So we're trying to keep that in mind. Um, and I guess that would be like the most interesting about me. The good thing about me right now is that I'm here 
Um, we foster a lot of animals and dogs, um, cats. So our house is always busy and full. So it's fun. It's a good experience. I love that, that you're on an island and the sea is, you know, uh, Dutch, I think you mentioned. And half Dutch. Uh, half Dutch. And that mm -hmm. you guys are fostering animals. I love that. Uh, yeah, I'm almost going to be like, girl, don't come to the U.S. <laughs> it's a mess. <laughs> my, my boss will be the same thing. He's just like, because he went and did work in Costa Rica for a little bit. Oh, and he okay. lives in New York. And he was like, I didn't want to go back. You know, so no rush. No rush in coming back to the States. Like, enjoy your time. So. That doesn't yeah. help me with my decision either, but I yeah. appreciate it. The U.S. is definitely going through some period of time of like transformation mm -hmm. and reckoning. And um, it's funny you mentioned like you're in the middle of deciding because like I literally was just uh, reflecting on like do how long do I want to be here before I like move abroad and just get yeah. that abroad experience. Um, all right. So let's start with your career. Uh, you work for the I Have a Dream Foundation. So tell us about it. Uh, exactly uh, what's their mission, what they focus on. And also, how did you come across this opportunity and what's your role in it? Yeah, so my background is actually in social work. I got my undergrad and my graduate degree in social work. So ever since graduating college, I really wanted to focus on work that centered around social justice. It's always been my driving force. Um, one of my former teachers or professors used to say I was like the most antisocial social worker because I actually don't like direct services. Like I was never meant to be a therapist or, you know, working with like one-on-one -on -one with certain populations. It's just not what I uh, do my best work in. And I think that's why I really love social work because it allows you to work on different levels. So what I do is work on a macro level. Um, so I work for I Have a Dream Foundation. Um, I was looking for work that would allow me to be remote. This was before I moved to Aruba and knew I was going to be abroad. Um, but I still wanted to be remote. Um, I really liked being in Atlanta and I wanted to do that. And I stumbled upon I Have a Dream Foundation um, and they were working, they were looking for someone to run their mentoring program. So I Have a Dream Foundation, it was founded, I believe, in 1981 um, by Eugene Lang. He went to give a speech um, to a graduating class, I think it was sixth graders in East Harlem, New York. And the principal told him that 75% of the kids there weren't going to make it to high school, like they weren't going to graduate. And when he heard that, he ended up changing his speech to commit to anyone who graduated high school, he committed to paying their college tuition. Um, and so the stats out of that are really great. Like a lot of them did go on to graduate and to get post-secondary um, education and jobs. And he continued with this model. He hired people to kind of run the programs and it just continued to expand across the U.S. So there's affiliate sites. Those are the ones that I work with, the ones that are involved in the mentoring model. What I do, my role is, the title is really long and annoying, but it's like mentor training and technical assistance manager. Um, my role is actually grant funded through OJJDP, um, specifically Department of Justice. And it, you know, it's a grant that they applied for before I came in, and it gives us the funding to run this mentoring program um, with, within the I Have a Dream model, which is a really holistic model. Again, it goes off of what Eugene Lay wanted to do, which is commit to kids you know, when they come into school, we have cohorts as early as like pre-K and K, and we commit to working with them and helping them until they graduate high school and sometimes beyond that. Um, whether that's through, you know, social emotional learning skills, you know, other academic enrichment, literacy, um, after school programming. I mean, there's so many facets um, depending on the site where they're at or the state they're at. Um, and one thing we really wanted to add was mentoring. So I to have worked to design the program, implement the program. We have it 
uh, seven sites right now, and the goal is to have it in nine sites by the time we're done with the 2024. That's when the grant ends. And we'll reapply, hopefully get the funding again, and actually hope to expand to a couple more affiliates oncoming. And one hopefully is going to be, you know, near my hometown, which is what I'm really excited about. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the gist of what I do, what I have a dream does. That's awesome. And uh, so when you say they're in seven sites right now, I guess I'm curious, as, a, as um, somebody now used to be like, where are they located and how how can one, you know, kind of be, uh, learn more about it or maybe see if... Um, the, their kids or they can be part of this uh this program that sort of like shepherds them you know across mm -hmm. their school years into university so we're always looking for mentors that's my whole job <laughs> um so there are sites so it was founded in new york so there's actually two sites in new york there's one in east harlem and chelsea um there's also sites in miami that's one of our other pilots we have um, one in colorado there's actually a few in colorado but the one that has Mentoring through this grant is in Boulder. There's Milwaukee. There will have one in Dallas, Texas um, in the next couple of months, hopefully. LA, um, Haley, Idaho, um, New York, New Jersey. I'm sure I'm missing one. I think that's most of them. But on our website is when we have all the different sites. I Have a Dream is pretty extensive. It even reaches to New Zealand. There's a program there. They don't, unfortunately, um, qualify to be in our grant because they're outside of the US. That would be a dream because they have like a lot of people and it'd be really cool. But if anyone's interested, it's all on our website, all the different sites we work with. And, okay. and you know, if you want to volunteer, get involved, like the info is all on there. Okay. So if there's anybody out there who wants to be part of uh, volunteer as a mentor, they, they yes, mentor or, you know, even after school programming, there's a lot of events we do. Like we did stuff for MLK. Like okay. this is specifically to help under-resourced communities. And okay. for me, it's really important to find mentors that, yeah. you know, look like the kids they're working right. with so they right. can see, you know, this is what I could do or this is what I might want to do. So right. yes, please go if you're interested <laughs> at all. That's exciting. Yeah, I'll definitely add the link to the episode notes. And if there's anybody out there who's looking to contribute back to our community, um, definitely uh, looking to becoming a mentor for the I Have a Dream Foundation. That's awesome. How did you come across the role? So I was in a frenzy back then, um, but I know, I, I think it was either LinkedIn or Indeed, um, but it could also have been Idealist. So those are the three that I always go to for nonprofit. Idealist.org has really great like organizations. Um, I had no connections to I Have a Dream. I'd never even heard of them, which is probably really terrible. Um, but I just didn't know who they were, but I had worked on grants before, before um, coming here, I had worked in Utah for like COVID-19 response under a grant as well. And then before that, I had done, um, for the state of Georgia, I worked for the Criminal Justice Coordinating Council, and I just managed grants through them. So I was really looking for grant work because it's what I'm most comfortable with, again, on that macro level. And so I think in my searches, I just really tried to look for grant work, grant funding, program management. And it was one of those sites. I can't exactly remember which one, but those definitely were the keywords that I was looking for. Nice. Yeah. I'll add that to the list as well. You said Idealist, LinkedIn, and Indeed yeah. are, are some, of the, some of the sites that you use to look for grant work. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. All right. Okay. So let's move it to learn about your Peruvian background. So you, in your introduction, you mentioned that your parents are, were, you know, are Peruvian. Your mom is from Iquitos and your dad's from the coast. So share a little bit of your Peruvian background with us. Oh, man. Yeah. I recently also asked my parents about this because I always wondered why they came to the States. I mean, this is very you know millennial of like, why was I brought into this world that is like on fire, you know? Um, and I just imagined myself in Peru frolicking. And I asked them, like, why did you guys come here? 
Um, my dad, who was a pastor for years, is no longer a pastor. Um, he, is a pa- he was a pastor for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He was pastoring, and I don't remember exactly where. It could have, it might have been Ayapucho, um, but it was like some more remote areas. Um, and there was a lot of terrorism happening at the time. Um, this is back when my sister was already born. So my parents already had one child. Um, she was like fresh out the womb. And there was just a lot of terrorism. My mom told me that one specific incident, you know, they were coming through looking for anyone who had any sort of religious position. So pastors specifically. And my dad wasn't home. And my mom just like hid and like turned off the lights and was like holding my sister to keep her from crying. And so ever after that, they were like, we have to leave. Like, this is just not a safe. We're being persecuted here. Um, my grandfather at the time, he... Um, is does a lot of work in Peru. He does a lot of um, conservation work, um, a lot of like narco trafficking work, had some connections and was able to like kind of fast track their visa to come to the States. Um, and so that's kind of why they left. Um, I was born in Atlanta, that's where they landed. They were there. And then my mom's side of the family was actually all in California. My mom was like, hate it in Atlanta. Don't want to stay here. Take me to my sisters. My mom only has sisters. And so that's where I grew up. I grew up in Southern California um, and then eventually moved back to Atlanta when I was 13, whereas all my dad's side of the family lives. So I had both of those experiences growing up. So that's the long story of how I ended up in America. Yeah, I, I definitely think that we, you know, as millennials are more curious about our past. And I wonder how, uh, at least my parents are definitely open to talk about it. But I know some parents, the, the reason they came to the U.S. It's it's a bit painful that you know when we asked them, it could trigger you know a lot of mm-hmm. memories for them. So um, yeah, but I still think it's valuable to ask those questions and to know that story because then you can pass it down you know later to your children and to those that come after us, and they can they know like the reasons why we came to this country, right? So um, so your dad is a pastor. That was was a pastor. Was a pastor. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that must have been tough. <laughs> Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, so can you share a little bit about us? Can you share a little bit with us, like how that influenced or didn't influence like uh, your communication with them or you, how you communicated and uh, you shared with us that I guess you identify, am I saying this correct? Like you identify as queer? Is that, would I, that be correct? I both queer and lesbian. Okay. Okay. So I know for in religious households that can be very tough and then members of our audience were going through that, whether they're parents or whether they are themselves sharing that experience with their family for the first time, uh, don't know how to approach conversations, right? And um, how did you approach this conversation with your family, especially coming in from a very religious household? And can you share that with us? And, and I guess if you have any insights to like parents, like advice for parents, how can parents be more supportive of their kids when uh, they come out to them? Or how can kids like think through before coming to coming out to their parents? And this is unfortunately something that only like I, as a straight woman, I never had to think and like tell my mom, well, I'm a straight woman. Like I never went through that. So um, I also am trying to educate myself as, you know, as a member of this community and trying to make it safe for folks to mm-hmm. talk about. So, yeah. So those are loaded questions. Um, I think. Well, to start off, to answer the very first thing you said, um, I was like fully indoctrinated into the church. Like my dad, I think at one point, no, we did. We lived in a church. Like we were between houses and we were literally living in a church. Um, I was also homeschooled since I was 13. So like my, the extent of my social interaction was my family who was all religious. 
and then church, obviously, which is full of religion. So I was heavily, heavily involved in religion. My parents kind of went through extremes where sometimes they were really conservative. And sometimes it would be a little bit more relaxed and, you know, how closely they were sticking to what they thought they should be doing. Um, so following, you know, the path that had been laid out before me, I attended a religious university. That's where I got both of my degrees in. And it was an experience. I, I knew that I was gay, like, I think pretty early on. I think the youngest I can pinpoint, I was 13. Um, but I like squashed it. I was like, no, that's just a silly thought. That's, I don't know what that is. And I just moved on. I just kept going. And when I was in college, I met a guy and I was like, this seems like doable. And I got married. I was really young. I, yeah, crazy. <laughs> oh, wow. You went through that whole experience. You were like, let me I, test it out. <laughs> I was in it. I said, I believe, you know, I, I think it was like 20 or 21. I was really young. Um, but I just thought like, oh, this is as good as it gets. He was like my best friends. And like, we both had like similar ideals. And I was like, sure, why not? You know, like, this is fine. I can do this. Um, I could not do it. And um, I continued to come to terms with things about myself. And I remember I had this one moment where I was like, oh, I know I'm queer, but I still didn't want to identify as lesbian. I was just like, I'm queer. That's like as much as I can, you know, label it right now. And I called my mom and I was like, hey mom by the way and I told her and her reaction was just very like okay moving on and I at the time I was like maybe she's fine with it but if this was under the whole marriage like I was still married like I'm pretty sure in her mind she was like that was a really strange thing to tell me but it doesn't matter because I'm married to a man did you tell her did you tell her in Spanish or in English because I think the the phrasing could be different and and it's an important difference too so yeah I didn't say it was queer like that. I okay. I think my parents are really good about like going back and forth. Okay. Um, so, and I was nervous and I was, so I think what I basically came out say, and this could have been in Spanish, probably was a mix of just like, well, I like boys and girls. Like yeah. I like them both, okay. you know? Um, I don't think I've ever used the word queer around my parents. I don't, I don't know if they would, I don't know if they could lock that one away, but okay. that was a good question. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, when I got divorced because I eventually, you know, there was no way that was going to work. I got divorced a couple of years ago and I tried to hint it like here and there to my family that I was like not just being men. You know, I would, I would go to dinner with them and my sister would be like, how's dating? And I'm like, yeah, I met this girl the other day. Never acknowledged it, never said anything. But when I started dating my wife, who ironically I met in the same college where I met my husband, I straight up told my mom, I was like, I'm seeing her. I think this is like serious, like this is, this is not just dating. Like this is going to be something more. And I really want to hear your thoughts. And she was very nonchalant about it. Um, but in a cold way, like she was like, okay, thank you for telling me. And that was it. That was the most she could tell me. My dad, on the other hand, really loved to throw like Bible verses at me. And we would just debate with very similar personalities. So it was just like, well, if you do this, you're going to hell. And I'm like, well, if I don't do this, I'll be unhappy forever. So it was just, he definitely communicated more, but not in a positive way, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's uh, that's intense. Um, so I guess, and at any point, if I'm asking something that is not phrased correctly, please feel free to help me out mm-hmm. because I'm also learning. Uh, you said at 13, you got, you had a feeling or you were sort of reflecting on, on who you are, right? Um, I know that at times when... 
at that age, we share to our parents and we tell them something, whether our sexual orientation or things we're feeling. Or I remember, I think I remember telling my mom, I think I'm depressed when I was like around that age. And my mom was like, she's like, Eso está en tu cabeza. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and it, and you're like, oh, maybe it is. Like, it, you know, it's the same thing. You start thinking, like, maybe it is something just fleeting. Um, mm -hmm. I guess, like, did you, sh I guess at 13, did you share anything with your family, whether parents or siblings? Or or what was it that um, that made you have this feeling? Was it that you were coming to, like, an adolescence and then you were, like, you know, looking at people because everybody's looking at each other at that age. I guess I'm curious about at 13, what was it that you started to be like, oh, maybe this is who I am? So it's funny because I remember this exact moment so perfectly. I was on the bed with my mom. I think we were watching like a movie or something. And I had a really good guy friend at the time, loved him. And I was always hanging out with him. And my mom was like, hey, do you have a crush on so-and-so, by the way? And in my head, I, I responded to her and I was like, that's gross. I like girls. Like I would never like him. And I caught myself thinking this and I was like, oh, we're going to never think about that again. Wow. And I was so scared that I'd blurted it out. But I was like, okay, that was just my head. Don't know where it came from. And then I just like moved on. Like I'd never had that thought. Wow. It's like your hand responded. And fortunately, your mouth didn't <laughs> speak. <laughs> yeah. I was like, nope, lock that away. <laughs> that's how, that's how, that's funny. Um, okay. So what advice would you give to like parents when their kids are, you know, come to them with wanting to have this conversation and vice versa? Like how, how do kids determine, are my mom and dad ready to hear mm -hmm. this? Should they maybe tell a sibling first or friend, I guess, what advice do you have for both sides there? Yeah, I was actually talking to my wife about this last night because her parents, her dad is actually currently a pastor, um, also religious. So she had her own coming out experience. So we were kind of talking about like what we wish could have happened, what we would advise others to do. And I think for parents, the first thing I would want to gently remind them of is that's still your kid. Like there's not that much that changes. There, there really isn't going to be these huge shifts, like whether it's going to be them coming out as trans or, you know, saying they want to express themselves differently with how they, what they wear or et cetera, or, or if it's their sexual orientation, that's going to change. Like there really isn't that much inherently that changes like the soul of that person is still going to stay the same like they might just like get a tattoo or like get a piercing like, there's not going to be that much that drastically changes and so I feel like something I've experienced is you tell someone this one admitting like, like minor fact about yourself and now you're not their kid anymore they don't want to look at you the same that's not true like that's still your kid that was my first piece I think the second piece um that we were also talking about, because right now in Aruba, there's like these petitions going around for them to ban same-sex marriage, which they can't do because of their connection to Holland. Okay. Um, so it's illegal here to adopt. You can't do same-sex same parent adoption, mm -hmm. but they recently made it legal for people to get married here. They will acknowledge it, but you can't, you couldn't up until a certain point get married here. So my wife and I couldn't marry here. We had to go to the States to do that. Um, but I, I was driving on Saturday and there was just these like, tons of people out with their petitions with these signs like protect the kids protect the kids and we were talking about last night and I, I think parents really need to internalize this this loyalty that they need to have to their kids and remember that like the world does change for them a little bit like there will be a space that they come to where they're not going to be safe like people will look at them differently people will 
have things to say, will discriminate. And as parents, like you just want someone who's on your on your team. And I feel like that's what parents should do. Like they should be ready to be those fierce warriors, you know, to to just like, you know, throw hands for their kids if they have to, because they won't always have that, Mm -hmm. depending on where they go in the world. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, for kids, my wife and I really haven't talked about this one too. Um because I think something, especially in like really religious, like hyper-religious households, I think something to be really mindful of is safety. Um, I think there's a lot of people who would love to come out and be able to, you know, own who they are and live in that. But it comes down to safety where they just might not be able to do that. And I think something, and it's almost unfortunate that I have to say this, but I think really my advice is, you know, assess the situation you're in. You know, if you're in a space where you feel like you can't come out because it, it could genuinely threaten your safety, whether that's you might get kicked out, you might be in some sort of violent situation, even if that's verbal, like you have to assess that. And remember that chosen family is a really beautiful thing. Like the queer community has such power in chosen family. You know, right now I don't speak to my family, really. They don't speak to me um, ever since coming out our relationship with extended family, even my grandparents has all really changed. And I had to rely so heavily on chosen family. And when I think back to my life, I've been doing this for a long time. Like I've known that there are things about myself I couldn't share. And that can start really early. And there's nothing that, there's sometimes nothing you can do about the family you were born into, unfortunately, but you can choose who will support you and who will let you live in your truth and be happy. Yeah, I think that both messages of like parents doing their best to be that safe haven for their child is like so key because especially just being black and brown and then adding this to the mix, it's like the world's not a safe place, right? And so if parents can create that for their kids, it's like the best gift that you can give them in many ways, just be that safe place for them to go. Um, And I think I recently also saw that um, a lot of, uh, I guess a good percentage, I don't remember the exact percentage of um, teens, homeless teens, are teens that have come out and been kicked out of their homes. And so that makes me really sad because to your point, nothing's really changed about that child that the parent now feels like this now no no longer their child. But I guess I was wondering, do you know of any resources um, for teens um, who might find themselves in this situation? Um, you know, whether they're they're get, they're getting kicked out or or whatever of or don't have the support from their families um, that they can sort of look to. So I don't know any. I know some in Atlanta where I was from, but that's very Atlanta specific. Mm-hmm. Um, I think based off of the experiences I had um, in just working, because when I was at um, the my university, we kind of had like an underground little gay straight alliance. And so we worked together to put together some resources for college students who yeah. might encounter similar issues. And I think one, sometimes family will surprise you. And if there's someone in your family who you trust and you can be with, whether that's a sibling, a cousin, Sometimes grandparents will also surprise you. I think my wife's grandma, like when her dad was being all conservative, her grandmother was like, if you don't talk to her, you're going to lose her as your daughter. And do you really want that? And then he snapped out of it. So sometimes family will surprise you and you just have to kind of assess it. Um, Ironically, some churches will also have a lot of resources. There are some churches there that a lot of what they do is try to work with youth who have been kicked out for whatever reason, um, because they really are, you know, preaching that God is love. So. Sometimes there's some really good churches, um, but I know 
at least per city, there I've encountered a lot of shelters that are very specific to LGBTQ youth. Um, so that you can go in a space where you see people who are like you, you see that representation and they're, you know, very catered to that community. So those I think would be my recommendations. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Um, all right. Let's do one last pivot before we wrap up the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you shared with us that you and your wife are planning to expand your family. Uh, you mentioned that in Aruba, you can adopt uh, same-sex, same-sex couples cannot adopt. So I guess like, what is that process like for a queer couple or same-sex couples? I don't think many people know. Um, and I actually recently uh, listened to an episode about the cost that same-sex couples go through. Oh, yeah. And span their family. So that's why I was like, this is really interesting because, you know, I didn't know. For some, you know, mm-hmm. like, it's not my experience, so I didn't think about it. And as I'm listening to this episode about the cost, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is quite a... Uh, quite an expense to say to say the least so can you talk a little bit about that yeah girl it's like thousands of dollars like it's a lot of money um there's a couple of aspects to it and really a lot of this is going to be dependent on where you live or where you're planning to live if you want to have a family which is also and my wife and I are just like continuously like what are we gonna do um there's the actual like insemination process right so for um a lot of queer folk um, and I'll speak specifically to, like, I would say lesbian couplers or women loving women um, or those who are able to carry a baby. Um, in those relationships, the, there's a lot of insemination banks that people use, like cryobanks, which are very expensive. So that's one option that people do. Um, there's also known donors. That's what we're actually planning on doing. We're going to use a known donor, which helps on the cost. But there's also the legal side to things, right? Depending on where you try to do this, there might be laws about how you can inseminate. Like in Georgia, you can't inseminate at home, right? So you have to go do it through a clinic, which then means, you know, you have to you can look at those loopholes, look at whatever legal issues might come up. Um, but even if you use a clinic, there are certain places where even if, you know, you're registered that you're married, your partner will not automatically go on that birth certificate. And even if they do, a lot of places won't recognize two moms on the birth certificate as two parents. They'll just recognize one. So in the United States, specifically Georgia, because that's where I've done a lot more research, my wife would have to adopt whatever child we have. And they would say step-parent, even though to us that doesn't feel right. So that's kind of the legal side, depending where you are. You know, and I know in Holland, they were the first country to ever legalize same-sex marriage. Um, so their process, I think they have an app where you just like put in, you know, this is my wife. We're going to have a baby. This is the known donor or yeah, the known donor assigned away their rights. And that's it. Like, it's pretty easy. It's like a website or an app. It's, it's very streamlined. U.S., not so much. Ruben Curacao, you just can't adopt. If you're a same-sex um, partnership or marriage, you can't adopt. Um, so only one person would be on that birth certificate. And then there's also like more questions about like, would they be able to have Dutch nationality because I'm American. And even if I had a baby here, they would have to get claimed by someone who has Dutch nationality. And then that means the person who claimed them would be on the birth certificate, which would not be my wife. So there's like the legal and technical side. And then there's, I would say the more emotional mental side of where do you want to have this child? Where do you want to raise this child? Um, where are you going to get harassed less? Um, you know, my, my wife is half black, half white. Um, I'm Peruvian. Um, we're two women <laughs> and we, you know, present as such. And then we walk around with a baby, depending where we live, that could be dangerous. That could not be, um, received very well. And so the mental side of that is, you know, where do we want to live? Where are we going to be happy? Where are we going to be safe? 
Um, where are we going to have, you know, people around us to support us? Like I was listening to a song earlier and, and, you know, it says it really does take a village to raise someone. It takes a village to nurture someone and to allow them to become the person they want to be. And I currently don't have that village. You know, I have friends, I have my chosen family, but my blood family, I don't really speak to. I speak to my sister, my brother, but the rest I don't anymore. Right. So for me, sometimes I'm like, well, the U.S. is out of the picture. Um, but then we go to Holland. Like, do we want to go to Holland like, and be around people who don't look like this and who aren't going to speak, you know, Spanish or Papiamento or um, we just hear Dutch and English and that's it? Should we stay on an island where it's not even legal for my wife to be recognized as a parent? It's just, it's, it's really emotional. It's really mental. Um, and it's just not as easy when it's to, you know, straight cis people who are doing it. Um, and I love that other people have the ability to do it. I just wish it was easier for queer families to be able to do it as well. Yeah, the the whole uh, question of safety is key, and um, and for the legal aspect, that involves lawyers, which charge crazy amount of money. It's a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I remember, I don't remember the what the. The cost they in the other podcast that I listened to was, but it was several thousands of dollars that this whole process takes. So, um, best of luck with that decision. I know Thank it's a you. big decision, and but I'm sure that at the end, when you hold your baby, it'll be all worth it. Uh, I just hope the best for you, and whatever you decide, you know, I wish you a lot of joy and a lot of safety, and then that you feel at home, and that you are able to feel supported by that chosen family that you know that you have. Hope. Yeah, and I hope that you, you have. So, um, what is one last message that you want to leave our audience with? Oh, I was thinking about this one too, because um, there's so much, you know, there, there really is. But I kept thinking about this conversation I have with a friend of mine who lives in Atlanta. We have this conversation really often because it's always about family and how our parents speak to us um, or how they don't speak to us. And I think that for a lot of queer folk, there's this particular subset of queer folk that, you know, they haven't been completely rechazado, right? Like no one's like completely rejected them or disowned them, but they're not completely accepted. They're not completely welcome. They're not celebrated. There's like this in between. And my friend and I, we call it just being tolerated. Like, you know, the mention of your partner is tolerated, right? The fact that you're in a relationship with someone who is not the, the norm is tolerated, right? And so you're just tolerated. And there's this grief that comes with this tolerance of, you know, you, you grieve what was, you grieve what could be, and you kind of have to just navigate it. And I think in, in those different stages that I've had with my family, I think one thing that I've really tried to internalize for myself, and I think is important to hear again for that, like very specific subset of people is we, we don't, need to just be tolerated like we don't deserve to just be tolerated like we really do deserve to be celebrated you know we we go into the world we do the best we can we find someone to love we want to keep spreading that love and that deserves to be celebrated like you deserve to be celebrated and everyone gets to set the limit to how much of that tolerance or intolerance they're willing to take and there's nothing wrong with that and that's why chosen family is so beautiful you can get you get to choose who you want to give your time who you want to celebrate with so yeah, I think don't don't settle for being tolerated. It's okay. Do it, you know, until you can't and then move on to people who will celebrate you and love you. Love that. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I really appreciate your time with us. 
if anybody in the audience wants to reach out to you about, you know, the I Have a Dream Foundation question or they just want to connect, what's the best way to connect with you, whether it's Instagram or LinkedIn, <laughs> whatever your chosen <laughs> method is? Yeah, um, Instagram, LinkedIn, definitely Instagram. Um, I think that, that gets to me a little bit faster sometimes. LinkedIn, I, I forget it exists, but Instagram for sure. Awesome. And I'll add that link to that episode notes. Again, thank you so much, Stephanie. And I hope you continue to enjoy your island <laughs> for as long as you, <laughs> as long as you stay there. I Thank you. Your time. Thank you. This season of Peruvian of USA is brought to you by Ana Isabel Photography. Are you looking for a photographer who can capture your piece of history? Look no further. Ana Isabel specializes in everything from weddings to family portraits, and she's here to help you show up as your best self in every shot. She knows that having your photo taken can be nerve-wracking, but she is committed to making the experience seamless and stress-free for you. Her goal is to capture your essence in every photo and make you feel comfortable throughout the day. With her expert eye and attention to detail, she will freeze time together with you, creating beautiful images that you can revisit whenever you want to spark a memory. Whether you're looking for stunning wedding photos or timeless family portraits, Anisabel has the skills and expertise to bring your vision to life. In 2019, Anna captured beautiful photos of my family. It was the first time we had a professional family photo shoot. So why wait? Contact Anna at anisabelphotography.com today to book your session and start creating memories that will last a lifetime. Are you a small business looking to expand your digital footprint? Are you a small business looking to reach more of the Peruvian diaspora in the United States? Consider sponsoring an episode of Peruvians of USA. Peruvians of USA has launched its first sponsorship program. If you're interested, please visit peruviansofusa.com slash sponsors or send us a message on Instagram. Thank you for listening to Peruvians of USA. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and review an Apple podcast. It lets other Peruvians find the show. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at peruviansofusa. I'm looking forward to connecting with you there. All right, talk to you soon. Ciao.